Institute Innovation Spotlight, a podcast series designed to bring you commentary and analysis on leading education systems change. With the COVID-19 pandemic shifting school systems to remote learning, we are certainly living, teaching, and learning in unprecedented times. If there were ever a time to talk about how to redesign school models and dramatically alter the future of teaching and learning, now seems like the right time. My name is Matt Shea, and joining me is Courtney Belolan. If you've recognized our voices, it's because we manage the Aurora Institute Voices Hub every year at the annual Aurora Institute Symposium, which just like this podcast, is a place for the field to share thought leadership and insights into education policy and practice trends. So if you're headed to San Antonio for Aurora 2020 this fall, please stop by the Innovation Corner and have a chat with us. Matt, Aurora Institute is well known for producing some of the field's most important reports, research, and issue briefs on personalized, competency-based education. Yes, all things driving the transformation of education. With this podcast, Aurora Institute is adding a new way to share the latest thinking in education, innovation, new directions in the field, and deep dives into the field's most pressing issues. This series, Innovation Spotlight, is back by popular demand. It's an answer to a frequent request that the Aurora Institute gets to provide expertise, collaborate with the field, and to host conversations on tough subjects. That's right. And today we're talking about the role state policymakers can play in redesigning school systems with a special emphasis on rethinking just about everything about school in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. So earlier this month, the Aurora Institute Center for Policy released its federal and state policy priorities. The center called on lawmakers to act on four federal and 11 state level issues to help make K-12 education fit for the purpose of ensuring future success for all learners. One of those state level issues is continuity of learning. So we'll talk about how state policy can help ensure anytime, anywhere learning, which is as you all know, now much more important than ever in light of COVID-19. Joining us today are Susan Patrick, Aurora Institute's President and CEO, and Alexis Chambers, Aurora Institute's Policy Associate. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Matt and Courtney. Thank you. So let's jump right in. Why are the state and federal policy priorities so important right now as we deal with COVID-19's impacts on our nation's school systems? That's a great question, Courtney. We're all reminded during this crisis just how important our public schools are. This pandemic, with so many schools closing, has shown how ill-equipped traditional one-size-fits-all models of education are to be responsive for each student's needs and to support anytime, anywhere learning. Supporting our educators with the tools they need to personalize instruction in the classroom, but also in remote learning, and to support students to set their goals each day connecting students with their peers, educators, and other mentors at a distance, building essential academic knowledge and skills for lifelong learning. Our federal and state education policy leaders must begin planning for a more future-focused education system. Now more than ever, it's fair to take a look at what needs to happen at the federal and state levels to affect major change towards creating education systems that are equitable and resilient coming out of this crisis. That's right, Susan. And state policy plays a unique role in enabling the kinds of changes we're talking about. We publish our policy priorities now because we know that states can create and support learner-centered policies that enable schools and districts to make these shifts. Decisions about instruction, curriculum, methods, delivery models, and tools and certainly preparedness for emergencies are made locally. That's why each year we highlight areas that state policymakers can leverage to influence the practice that happens in our schools. We do this with the support of our community of 8,000 education professionals who are on the ground and are facing these issues head on. The ultimate goal of this work is to synchronize policy and practice to affect broad systems change within K-12 education. Our traditional systems are a top-down, one-size-fits-all factory model. Is our system fit for purpose in a rapidly changing world? If we look closely, rather, it prioritizes time and efficiency over ensuring deep levels of learning. It prioritizes ranking and sorting kids, reducing their K through 12 education down to a single GPA at the end, rather than focusing on goals and building competence 
developing and supporting our youth to reach mastery. While assessments for learning are key, there is an overemphasis on narrow outcomes and summative assessment that don't improve teaching and learning. We need a systems change. People keep talking about returning to normal. That is not a normal we want to return to. We are part of a community that supports the Center for Policy in analyzing current trends. The priorities are always spot on and get to the heart of what schools need to become future-focused and equitable institutions. Why don't we start with the state policy priorities because this is where you make special recommendations for continuity of learning. What's that all about and why is it important in light of COVID-19? Thanks, Matt. We need better planning for continuity of learning inside and outside of school. We need coordination, better communication with educators, parents, students, and the community. School leaders and education policymakers are grappling with unprecedented decision-making about closings, reopenings, and how to equitably continue learning for all students, including those who have special needs. We do need regulatory flexibility from seat time, as well as privacy protections. We also need to broaden the tent with our K through 12 education systems leader, thinking more like mayors and bringing together community leaders to problem solve, work closely with state and local public health experts to develop a unified strategy for safety, health, well-being, and education. We might consider recalibrating on the very purpose of education and engage with all stakeholders so that students, families, educators, and community members are voices in the tent setting clear expectations for our youth in education and in public health. So continuity of learning is an emergency response measure to ensure students can stay on their learning pathways during an interruption, such as prolonged school closures or absence due to illness, natural disasters, pandemics, conflicts, or weather events. Some districts may refer to it as continuity of learning, continuity of education, academic continuity, among other terms. But it's about ensuring we can engage with communities on the purpose and priorities of public education and public health. It's also asking for a broader conception of outcomes of engaging our youth, especially those most underserved and the underlying bigger issues in driving equitable outcomes for our youth families and communities. While there's no playbook for an event of the scale and magnitude of COVID-19, schools that are prepared for anytime, anywhere learning are experiencing this pandemic very differently than most. In Lindsay Unified School District, which is in California, they have a competency-based education system. Students each day are empowered to tackle their learning goals and objectives where teachers provide supports and personalized pathways. That school district operates in a traditional school building, but has a very new competency-based personalized model of instruction. When COVID struck and they required shutting down schools, that school district, Lindsay Unified, was able to pivot in 24 hours, providing connections for teachers and students to learn anytime, anywhere. It had always been in their plan to support their competency-based model with anytime, anywhere learning, but they were thrust into it quickly with the school closures, and they succeeded. Their educators had the skills that they needed to support student learning, regardless of location, and students had always been empowered to set their learning goals and work closely with their teachers, not only on what they were learning and how they were setting goals, but how they would demonstrate that mastery along their learning pathway. Another interesting example is in Singapore from H1N1 in 2010, Singapore set up e-learning days and some e-learning weeks where they physically shut schools down for pandemic, preparedness and continuity of learning. This means that all of their content was digitally available. 100% of their teachers were trained in online learning and used blended learning in the classrooms. And that when they required to shut down schools, the Singapore education system was ready to move. They're using e-learning days every school year to practice for pandemic preparedness and continuity of learning and bring in those technology tools and resources into classrooms every day. 
This crisis really compels our local education agencies to think more closely about how to examine our school's readiness for emergencies. They should have a handle on what resources, technology, communications, and training are needed by students, parents, and staff in the event that schools close. Moreover, preparedness requires practice. It's not enough to set and forget an emergency or continuity of learning plan exists. It must be reviewed and updated on a regular basis. This historic event demonstrates the need to orient our schools and all our learners not to depend on time and place as the essential structure for learning, but learning that can happen anywhere. COVID also illuminates the gaps in professional learning. Just like we need learners who are prepared with 21st century skills, we need a modern teaching workforce that can adapt learning experiences for the times we face. Yes, and the policymaker role in achieving this includes establishing a statewide continuity of learning task force to plan, implement, and evaluate academic continuity and preparedness, and ensuring districts assess readiness for continuity of learning at least once annually, providing educators, students, and parents with training and the infrastructure to carry out the plan remotely, providing access to high-speed broadband platforms, materials, and tools needed for remote and online learning, and ensuring accessibility, equity, and options for students with disabilities. We're getting calls from policymakers looking for what they can do to create more future-focused education systems. State policymakers can support competency-based education systems and structures. They can support more credit flexibility, redefining credits from seat time to competency development, enabling anytime, anywhere learning, States and districts can create innovation zones for districts and schools to design educator-led and practitioner-led designs with their communities to create more modern learning environments, providing waivers to outdated policies and removing them that get in the way of doing what is right for our students and learner-centered models. We need more meaningful credentials and mastery-based transcripts. We need to mobilize and modernize our teachers, improving professional development, teacher training, and making a lifelong continuum for supporting teachers to develop and build new knowledge and skills on their own practices and craft. That's firmly in state policy. Evaluating state education policies to identify enablers and barriers to remote learning, such as credit flexibility for seat time, is important. We need to take action for the future. We need to move to competency-based education systems and structures to address these gaps. We need to create pathways for anytime, anywhere learning and ensure equity for all students in building mastery of knowledge and skills needed for success. So there are steps every state could take to be ready for anything that puts us in this position again in the future. That's very helpful to know, but that's, one of many steps you're calling on states to take to get districts into a position where we won't experience these frightening fractures in our school systems. So I think it might be hard to imagine what the model of teaching and learning could look like for a school that could easily shift from in-person to remote, synchronous to asynchronous. So those examples you offered, Susan, were very helpful, but these school models have other features that you want policymakers to support too. So let's talk about those. Yeah, it's important to go back. The first one would be, what is the profile of a graduate for our K through 12 students today? These schools that I've mentioned have redefined student success. They include a profile of a graduate that has a modernized vision for what students need to know and be able to do upon graduating. And this redefining success is one strategy that states are using to clearly set up a vision with a more holistic definition of success that helps states, districts, and schools be oriented towards more student-centered learning. So to get there, we recommend that states engage their communities, listen to communities and diverse stakeholders to create that vision to modernize and redefine more holistic graduation requirements. It means focusing on academic knowledge but also teaching academic skills and building habits of success for lifelong learning, problem solving, critical thinking, 
writing and communicating, as well as the social emotional skills. It involves broadening coalitions and developing this statewide profile of a graduate for K through 12 education based on a long-term vision describing the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that students need for college, careers, and civic life. Another entry point is innovation zones. So this is a powerful strategy to create space for educators to lead education transformation. These zones offer school districts a platform to request waivers or exemptions from state regulations and statutes to implement new learning environments. They enable state leaders to identify outdated policies and regulations that can impede innovative educators from meeting the needs of every student. So state policy can authorize the state board or state department of education to create innovation zones, which creates space for innovative school and district leaders to plan and launch new designs that are competency-based. State policy can also allow waivers for school districts from state statutes and regulations that impose barriers to modernizing K-12 education systems and provide flexibility for schools and districts to advance transformative practices both inside and outside of school. Two more ways state policy can enable districts to begin this work are by creating competency-based education task forces and allowing credit flexibility. Task forces for competency-based education create a space for dialogue between policymakers, stakeholders, and communities across the state by a formal statewide task force for competency-based education to bring together a group of experts and these stakeholders examining the issue in depth, considering the needs in policy and practice, and to provide recommendations and next steps for a state or a legislature. And in states, generally legislators that are sponsoring this kind of legislation will establish task forces for the purpose of studying the issues related to competency-based education at large. The needs and issues will vary state to state because of the differences in educational statutes, regulations, and even capacity. But competency-based education task forces offer a future-focused approach by providing a safe space to identify the barriers, needs, and consider options to best enable competency-based pathways. So why are these task forces important? It gives space to study these topics. It also allows experts inside and outside of the state to engage on best practices and policies on the topics of the task forces. Allowing these conversations to happen in a low stakes environment leads to more thorough understanding of what is possible. State leaders can benefit from having a space where they can exchange their ideas and concerns freely, and a competency-based education task force empowers members to challenge the ideas that one size fits all is the only way to deliver education. Dig deeply into the real problems of sorting kids in a time-based system and learn more about educator-led solutions using personalized competency-based learning while also dreaming big about what the future of education could look like for students. The other area that states can help with is providing more credit flexibility. How can states rethink seat time with credit flexibility policies? States can allow flexibility for schools to base student progression on demonstrated mastery of competencies rather than on instructional seat time. It allows students to earn credit by demonstrating mastery of skills learned in class, learned online, or inside and outside of school. It allows for states to begin to audit their state statutes and regulations to identify policies that rely on and reinforce seat time. Credit flexibility is a beginning and necessary step, but the shift to learner-centered systems is a bigger transformation and fundamental redesign of K-12 education. States can play an important role in capacity building to help schools and districts utilize credit flexibility policies to move toward highly personalized education systems. The standard Carnegie unit is defined as 120 hours, which translates into one hour of instruction per subject per day for 24 weeks. The Carnegie unit 
awards students one credit for a course that lasts all school year and a half credit for a course that lasts a semester. Systems of instruction based on seat time are so focused on ensuring minimum exposure to academic content that students often are left with gaps from semester to semester, from year to year, rather than ensuring student mastery of the content. Susan, before you go on, I think it might be helpful to our listeners to unpack what competency-based education is. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. I'd be glad to. Competency-based education is a system of learning. It's a system that is designed to ensure that all students succeed. How would we design an education system that was based on ensuring every single student achieves mastery, where failure is not an option? We've been working in the field of K through 12 competency-based education for more than a decade. And we've been working to help define and clarify what this means with the field. So we've created a seven part working definition just last year in 2019. First, students are empowered daily to make important decisions about their learning experiences, how they will create and apply knowledge and how they will demonstrate their learning. Number two, assessment is meaningful, positive and an empowering learning experience for students and it yields timely, relevant and actionable evidence. Three, students receive timely differentiated support based on their individual learning needs. If they're not yet mastering the material, they get immediate support. Fourth, students progress based on evidence of mastery, not seat time. Fifth, students learn actively using different pathways and varied pacing. Six, strategies to ensure equity for all students are embedded in the culture, structure, and pedagogy of schools and education systems doing competency-based education. And last, there are rigorous common expectations for learning for all students. The knowledge, skills, and dispositions are explicit, transparent, measurable, and transferable. You can actually learn more by going to our website, aurora-institute.org, and searching our resources for a publication called What is Competency-Based Education? Competency-based systems examine the shortfalls of traditional systems, ranking and sorting kids, reducing a lifetime of learning to the single GPA, allowing grading that students move ahead with gaps that miscommunicates to parents on what students actually know, these are some of the most rigid structures in K through 12 education. We take them for granted as a given, but they are not. Competency-based learning takes all of the things that we assume and turns them on their head to focus on a system designed for every learner to achieve mastery. So as school systems increasingly realize that they are not producing graduates who are ready for the world that awaits them, they are investing in studying new ways to organize teaching and learning. And so they are looking into competency-based models and finding tremendous promise. But scaling such an innovation requires the support of long-term alignment of both policy and practice. In addition, many states begin this work by enacting new kinds of policies for credit flexibility this credit flexibility offers students ways for students to earn credentials by demonstrating mastery, redefining credits by competency attainment. This enables school systems to move away from seat time model, which awards credits on how long a student has been in a seat in the line of sight of an instructor, rather than how much the student has learned. There are also mastery-based transcripts being adopted. So through the state policy priorities, we are encouraging state legislators and state education agencies to launch a statewide legislative task force for competency-based education to provide thought leadership and to create space and make recommendations on a path forward. We're also encouraging state legislators to clarify definitions of competency-based education systems to support the development and continuous improvement of these innovative education structures and models. State policymakers can also create and launch competency-based pilots that allow educators and schools to innovate new teaching and learning approaches 
tied to a state vision of student success, while also providing support to competency-based education models to build capacity for educators to share evidence and best practices. Likewise, lawmakers and policymakers can provide credit flexibility to schools and redefine credits be based, to be based on competencies for masteries of learning rather than solely on seat time. State policy priorities five and six kind of tie a lot of big ideas together and advance this notion of transforming schools by ensuring school students are prepared for what happens next. Can you talk about those? Priority number five is about establishing meaningful credentials. And priority number six is a bigger vision, aligning competency-based K through 12 education with higher ed, career tech ed, and the workforce. Think about the alignment of the learning experiences and the credentials over a lifetime. So we start with meaningful credentials. What does it mean to have a high quality credential that will articulate what a student actually knows and is able to do? Meaningful credentials provide transparency of achievement for students and also for communities and employers by defining these credits based on mastery of knowledge and skills. States can offer mastery-based diplomas or mastery transcripts, create proficiency-based graduation pathways aligned to high-quality standards and a comprehensive vision of student success, ensure that diplomas and credentials are meaningful with evidence, develop better quality assurance processes like calibrating mastery levels and reviewing student work, ensuring there are moderating processes across educators that are setting a high bar for all students. This is an important focus of equity. We asked today, how do we have students that are graduating from our high schools entering our colleges with remediation rates of over 40%? What does a meaningful credential look like? It looks like a big change from the current system. So you're right. Courtney, it's about making school systems intensely future focused and ensuring that our students actually have the knowledge and skills for future success. Schools are a pillar of our democracy and we have to question its purpose at this point. Is the role of school to put learners through an assembly line that ranks and sorts them or should we be about the work of ensuring every learner, and we mean all learners, are prepared to meaningfully engage in higher education, ready for work, but also prepared to be good citizens and carry on our democracy in a rapidly changing world. States and communities should be asking, what is a meaningful credential? How do we validate quality of our diplomas and credentials? Some places are adopting mastery transcripts and proficiency-based diplomas. There needs to be a thoughtful look at quality insurance and evidence of student work on what they know and can do. If you think about this more broadly, aligning K through 12, higher education, career tech ed, and workforce, this is about state policymakers working on creating a seamless pre-K through 20 system. Governors, legislators, and state policy leaders do have an important role to play in leading the transformation of education and workforce systems. There is an opportunity to take targeted funding from ESSA, but also from the Perkins Career and Technical Education Act to encourage alignment of programs with personalized pathways and competency-based approaches across K through 12, higher ed, and into the workforce. They are well positioned to convene state leaders over siloed education systems and workforce agencies to rethink success over a lifelong continuum. This would encompass early learning K through 12, career and higher ed, as well as the workforce. Too many high school graduates are not prepared for college or careers. How might systems be realigned for competency-based pathways? How might degrees focus on mastery-based credentialing and licensure? This requires a move from seat time and a shift toward a long-term focus on building the knowledge and skills students need. Several states have established graduate profiles that articulate a shared vision for student success, 
And this is a first step to drive towards coherence in statewide education systems with governors leading alignment across agencies and constituencies. To establish or reinforce the connections between K-12 and other systems of learning and the workforce, we're calling on states to create a task force for the alignment of programs across K-12, higher education, CTE, and the workforce. We're asking to align systems of early learning, K-12 education, career and technical education, higher ed, and workforce training by creating competency-based pathways and certifications, including micro-credentials, and creating a statewide vision for a lifelong continuous system of learning to ensure all youth have pathways to prosperity and focusing on building competency-based systems with recognition and validation of prior learning. The next two priorities are about educators. We're educators who firmly believe in the kinds of changes Aurora Institute is leading. Yes, Matt, priorities seven and eight are about modernizing the educator workforce and workforce diversity. We envision a teaching profession that is equity-oriented, learning-centered, and lifelong. For teachers to thrive in the kinds of student-centered learning environments we encourage, teachers have to first experience it themselves. This requires shifting how teachers are prepared. Where competency-based education is most successful, it's been driven by innovative teams of educators. We know teachers will be at the front lines of creating this new vision for our schools. We also know that the profession is largely white and female and the student populations look altogether different. We know that to get to the best, equitable, and just outcomes for all learners, educators need to match the experience of the communities they serve. We are aware of the size and magnitude of this challenge and don't take that for granted. That's precisely why policy is so critical to push and pull levers to make these changes a reality. We recommend states convene a statewide task force on modernizing teaching and professional learning, remodel teacher licensure and credentialing based on mastery, prioritize educator preparation and development for building the knowledge and skills teachers need to lead in competency-based student-centered learning, and build educator capacity for assessment literacy to evaluate anytime, anywhere student learning for mastery. And to improve workforce diversity, we must open up the pathways and dismantle the barriers that prevent educators of color from persisting toward this calling. States can do things like prioritize the use of ESSA Title II Part A funds to support the development of teacher preparation practices that support the diversification of the educator workforce, increase access and affordability of teacher and leader preparation pathways, and prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion across the educator leader workforce. And then the final two are about assessment and accountability, two issues that are often conflated in education and ones that the Aurora Institute has a distinct lens on. Indeed, Matt, balanced systems of assessments are an essential part of student-centered learning. They support students' deeper learning, give feedback to students on their learning, teachers and parents too. It offers insights on student outcomes. In a competency-based system, teachers are constantly checking for their students' understanding in formal ways and informal ways. Move on when ready. You're not yet proficient. A, B, or try again. These are big ideas in checking on students' learning and giving them chances to go deeper and ensure mastery. They're checking for understanding with formative assessment, tracking progress with interim assessment, and checking mastery of knowledge and skills. There's an important place for summative assessments too in ensuring students have learned with summative assessment. And yet, assessment today in the United States is often used as shorthand term for, or conflated to mean, quote, statewide accountability test. We really need to address the importance of assessment literacy and build those skills across the US. So we're asking, how do we hold our K-12 education institutions accountable for serving our students and all students? Accountability is about transparency and knowing how each and every one of our students is being served and ensuring their needs are met. If you make a promise, then we need accountability. Accountability is about building trust. We really need to examine whether and how 
different accountability models build on the promise for continuously improving toward an education system that is excellent, that is equitable, that is fair and just. To be clear, the link to each other in today's policy context, accountability and assessment are two separate concepts. We can and should examine our approach to policy regarding assessment. State policy leaders can create a task force with diverse stakeholders to reimagine the state assessment system, leveraging flexibility in the Every Student Succeeds Act towards balanced systems of assessments. They can create a working group on examining and auditing the systems of assessments that are being used in the state. They can consider leveraging competency-based assessments like place-based work in the STEM fields or the biliteracy seal that 37 states have. They can collaborate with willing districts and schools to explore possible approaches to piloting new innovative systems of accountability under the Innovative Accountability and Assessment Demonstration Authority, IADA, or ESSA Section 1204. They can convene pilots to develop balanced assessment systems that include multiple types of assessments, including performance assessments, which are linked to specific competencies and provide a range of evidence over time. Accountability can be redefined and redesigned and it should ensure that schools are continuously improving and states can move away from carrot and stick models of enforcement and compliance to a model of supporting schools to innovate and continuously improve. Next generation accountability systems can serve this purpose. A new accountability system can be an effective tool to inform capacity building in schools aimed at supporting teaching and learning in an equity-driven, student-centered, competency-based education system. So we encourage lawmakers to empower communities and build trust by developing a framework for reciprocal accountability to ensure that resources and supports are responsive to the needs of local communities, districts, and schools. Identify school improvement models to support student-centered learning with personalized competency-based education and to advanced equity, and determine the measures the state will use for accountability purposes. We know that under ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, responsibility and control over what happens in schools is concentrated in the hands of individual states. This is why your policy priorities painstakingly lay out opportunities at the state level to achieve these goals. But there are still many things that federal policy can do to support as well. So let's switch gears to federal policy priority recommendations. Alexis, can you talk about federal policy priority number one, preparing educator leaders for the future and what that would look like? Sure. We're recommending that a pilot program be launched in the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act to encourage the development of innovative, fully competency-based and personalized teacher and leader preparation programs. The shift to student-centered learning and K-12 education demands modernized preparation, like we mentioned before, training and ongoing development for teachers and school leaders. Some recommended actions include launching an innovation pilot for modernizing teacher preparation and re-examining educator competencies to drive systems to engage in a participatory process to define the right educator competencies for a future-focused context. This entails identifying core foundational competencies that will be prioritized for all educators and calibrating developmental competencies for evolving practices to support competency-based education programs and continuous improvement. And lastly, moving away from clock hour and time-based credits toward credits defined by competency attainment. And as with states, you think the federal government has a role in diversifying the educator workforce as well. Talk about that, Susan. Yes, to diversify and create more equitable pre-service pathways, federal policymakers should consider new strategies that address college affordability, persistence and completion in federal student aid policies. We're working with many education advocacy groups to propose a variety of areas to achieve this goal. These include considering reforms to federal student aid to increase access to competitive financial aid loans and loan forgiveness programs for the highest needs students, enabling competency-based models in higher education by ensuring that eligibility for loans is not tied to units of time, but rather to outcomes, and expanding pathways to new potential teachers by offering loans or loan forgiveness to mid-career professionals 
veterans, or other prospective teachers, modeling or extending successful efforts like the GI Bill and Military College Loan Repayment Program. In addition to increasing accessibility and affordability, such incentives could contribute to a future-ready workforce by integrating professionals with the skills and experience to support community-based, work-based, and applied forms of learning that prepare students to thrive in college and careers. Another role for federal policymakers is to expand the innovative assessment pilot. Right, Courtney. ESSA provides new flexibility for states to redesign systems of assessments to better align with student-centered learning. States can use a variety of assessment types, including formative and performance-based assessments, together to create statewide balanced systems of assessments. States can also apply to the U.S. Department of Education for the new Innovative Assessment Authority, or IADA, program. Through ESSA Section 1204, this allows states to pilot next-generation systems of assessments with a subset of districts prior to scaling statewide. But IADA could be strengthened to eliminate some of the implementation challenges it creates. Hindsight is 2020. Our priority is that federal policymakers do remove these barriers for states to participate by lifting the seven state cap, by allowing adequate time for states to plan and to do statewide scale up, and by making funding available for states to develop and stage implementation of high quality, innovative systems of assessments that do include performance assessments to support competency-based pathways. We're asking, why can't we ask states to support and run multiple pilots of innovative assessment tied to a defensible theory of action to support student-centered learning? This would create more data and information on student progress, better data models for equity, increased capacity for balanced systems of assessments for and of learning. Only then will we see the real achievement gaps the depth of the achievement gaps and be focused on meeting students where they are and achieving true equity. We seek to have a better data model to evaluate resources for adequacy and equity and examine the school funding formulas in states to determine how resources need to flow to support students. We need better data models for this. And a final federal priority is one I think is critical right now. Supporting the expansion of broadband infrastructure has never been more important than now when the entire nation's school system has moved to remote learning. Susan, can you talk about what federal policy priority number four, increasing access to broadband connectivity, would look like? With pleasure, Matt. To prepare students to succeed, Student access to technology and the internet are absolute requirements and an equity imperative. There have always been big gaps in a digital divide, but now it's more critical than ever. Comprehensive broadband infrastructure provides communities and schools with access to the internet for learning purposes. The Federal Communications Commission Universal Service Program, which includes E-Rate, provides funding to communities and to schools to support internet access for schools and libraries, and the Lifeline program supports low-cost home access to internet. These are increasing equitable student access to powerful learning opportunities, especially during times of remote learning. The FCC oversees the E-Rate and Lifeline programs, was last modernized in 2014 for E-Rate and in 2016 for Lifeline, but the funding has never kept pace with the demand. In the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, schools have closed affecting over 55 million students. As districts work to provide online learning opportunities for their students, many students are facing challenges of completing their work because of inadequate home internet access. According to data from NCES, 14% of children had no internet access at home, and major equity gaps exist. 12% of white students had no internet access at home, compared to nearly 20% of black students and 37% of Native American students. 
to keep pace with the accelerating demand for connectivity and adequate bandwidth, the FCC needs to increase funding by at least $4 billion. E-Rate and Lifeline internet access programs require the continued support and commitment from the FCC. These programs are essential. So we are asserting that Congress and the FCC need to take positive and proactive action to continue to modernize and expand funding and flexibilities for the E-Rate and Lifeline programs for schools and homes to address the persistent inequalities and digital divide that exists for underserved communities. This will require an increase in federal funding and expanding access. Crucial updates continue to be needed to modernize E-Rate and Lifeline and to expand essential internet and Wi-Fi connectivity for schools, community learning environments like libraries and homes. This is all great. It's so easy to lose sight of just how extensive a role there is for policy to create the future of teaching and learning. Thank you both for walking us through all these priorities. I also really appreciate how in the publications there are examples and case studies so we can see how some leading states and countries are approaching this work. You offer links to the exact language so everyone can come away with concrete action steps to get started. I just wanna say thank you. Your work has a direct impact on our work and we can see the needle moving. Before we go, I wanna open the floor to anything we may not have covered. Thanks. I'll leave you just one big idea. This is about innovating education for equity. And it's time to start with really deeply addressing this question of whether our system is fit for purpose. We need to create opportunities to design more future-focused education models we need to leverage what motivates students and build student agency and self-regulation. We need to use the research in the learning sciences on how students learn best and reverse engineer what a future-focused model would look like. Models where failure is not an option. We must create equitable systems and break down the structures holding inequities in place. How can we widen the tent of voices who drive policy forward. For major policy change, we should reconsider the nexus of power and hold schools more accountable locally for more reciprocal accountability and align across systems to give states and federal government clear data on how our education systems are meeting students' needs or aren't meeting students' needs. We must not be afraid to question the existing system and its structures designed to rank and sort kids that are holding so many students back. We must innovate for equity. Wow, it's, it's easy to um, overlook just how much work is going into thinking about policy and priorities and kind of all of that upper higher level background stuff that maybe people who are you know in schools day to day don't actually think about all that much i think one of the things that has always struck me since i got more involved with the or institute is that it's not just federal policy or state policy uh, there's 50 state policies so there is a lot of yeah. work and it's not just the state you work in which is usually what what we think uh that you know you right. you you work with the policies of the state you work in but there's they're doing that 50 times and right. still working at the federal level so there is yeah. there's a lot going on if we want to make any significant change it's not just convincing a small group of people to change policy uh, it's a whole number of small groups of people right it is. And, but I feel like what Aurora puts out is very clear. It's very consistent and it makes sense. It's, um, it's laid out in a way that makes it easier for people who may not be experts in policy as well as the experts in policy to understand their thinking. I would agree. I think that it's easy to read for uh, teachers and community members and even learners. Uh, to figure out what they are looking for, what the change is, is needed for, and some of the language that mm -hmm. will help the learners uh, in a more equitable situation, especially considering 
the times of COVID-19. Right. And so one thing I think about is how even if we don't necessarily feel like we're quote unquote experts in policy, that reading something like this and getting a good understanding of it can actually kind of spark in people like a civic duty, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to then start talking to their local policymakers. And that's where the difference is going to happen. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think that it's, it's presented in such a way that it's easy to talk about, even though policy is not everybody's like forte or even interest. Mm. But when it's laid out in such easy language on why they're doing it, uh, I think you can get community members to talk to, to actual policymakers and make a difference from there. So every year, thousands of people come to the annual symposium. It's a huge event. If you're not there, you are missing out on some of the field's most brilliant thinkers. I learn something new every time I attend. And like today's podcast, I get concrete action steps to implement. Me too. So if you'd like to join us in San Antonio this October 25th through the 28th for Aurora 2020, head over to aurora-institute.org slash symposium. All the details are there. Yes. And follow Aurora Institute on social media to get late breaking updates. On Twitter, they are at Aurora underscore I-N-S-T. And on Facebook, they are at Aurora Inst, I-N-S-T. And as we said at the top, we'll be there. We'd love it if you'd come to see us and chat with us. We'll be located in the Innovation Corner. So just check for signs directing you to the Voices Hub. We'd love to meet you and have you share what you are learning and experiencing in the transformation of K-12 education. We also want to thank our listeners for joining us for another episode of Aurora Institute Innovation Spotlight. To download a copy or read the future-focused state policy actions to transform K-12 education and the federal policy priorities to accelerate education innovation, please visit aurora-institute.org.